Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to uh, Christ Community on our Leewood campus. Uh, it's a big day in Kansas City, or at least in Denver, right? Um, go Chiefs! Pretty cool. Very cool. Well, on May 27, 1943, Lieutenant Louis Zamperini's life was forever changed. He was an amazing track star at USC, an Olympian, the one who could run like the wind of the greatest generation, found himself and his plane shot down and cap, being capt, captured by the Japanese, found himself confined to an unimaginable hell on earth as a POW of Japan. World War II historians tell us in ways that are shocking that unlike the POWs in Europe, the POWs who were captured in Asia experienced the most unimaginable torture and horror. 37% of all POWs of the greatest generation died a slow, torturous, withering death. 37%. But somehow, Louis Zapparini, Lieutenant Louis Zapparini, survived two and a half years of the most unimaginable imprisonment. Adding to that loss of freedom was a sadistic guard that is known by World War II historians as the bird. His name is Machuzaro Watnatabi. He was known as one of the most sadistic guards the POWs ever encountered. For two and a half years, Louis Zamperini felt his lash, his beatings, and with each lash and beatings, Louis Zamperini's hatred for Machuro Watanabe built and built and built. But finally, on September 2nd, 1945, Louis Zamperini's long desire for freedom came true. Japan surrendered, and World War II ended. One of uh, the finest books I've read in perhaps the last two or three years was written by a brilliant writer named Laura Hildebrand. It's called Unbroken. If you're looking for a Thanksgiving or Christmas read and you haven't, it is an extraordinary story of the heroes of the greatest generation, which Louis Zamperini is par excellence. Laura Hildebrand in her book describes the moment, what it was like for Louis, Louis Zapparini to experience freedom. She writes, for Louis, these were days of bliss. Though he was still sick, wasted, and weak, he glowed with euphoria, such as he had never experienced before. Like all men around him, he felt flush with love for everyone and everything. At that moment, all that Louis could feel was joyous rapture. Now, few of us can even imagine what it would be like to be imprisoned for two and a half years and to experience the physical freedom that you had been deprived of for so long. Because we take our physical freedom for granted, just like getting a glass of water at the faucet at the sink or at the refrigerator. It's just something that's so out of our experience. Yet in the mysterious depths of our hearts, we long for another kind of freedom, don't we? That is, the freedom not to just to go wherever we want or do whatever we please, but the freedom to do what we, want, what we really want to do and to be the kind of people we know we're supposed to be. 
Well, most of us will never know what it was like to be a prisoner of war. Many of us know a similar hopeless feeling because we find ourselves imprisoned behind other kinds of very confining bars, the bars of hatred, of bitterness in life, of disappointment with life, with anger, with unforgiveness, with envy, or a host of other addictions that capture the human spirit. Now, whether you are religious here this morning or irreligious or you've been in church all your life or you're coming back to church or just checking out Christianity, one thing is common for all of us, and that is the human heart longs to be truly free. Yet the biblical story tells us that in our fallenness and rebellion against the holy God, we have become captive to a cruel master. Your heart, my heart, was designed to worship God with joy and intimacy and to be one with creation in a beautiful harmony. We were created for this kind of worship and freedom, but we have to look at our hearts and say something has very definitely gone wrong because in the depths of our hearts we know it's not a place of freedom and joy and worship, it's a place of idol factories, relentless idols of the heart that enslave us, whether it is greed, power, certain kinds of pleasure, popularity to our friends, or perhaps most toxic to the human soul is the suffocating reality of misguided religion and toxic faith. One of my favorite writers of the 17th century is a French philosopher and mathematician named Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal said that men or humans never do evil so willingly than in the name of God. But what Pascal also knew is that humans are never so enslaved than when in the suffocating grip of misguided religion and toxic faith. Pascal is not the only one that knew that. The Apostle Paul knew this well. He knew what it was like to not have true freedom, to be enslaved by suffocating, self-meriting, legalistic religion. But one day, you remember if you were part of our Open Here series as we walked through the Bible, the Apostle Paul met the resurrected Christ. You remember that on the dusty Damascus road. And the Apostle Paul, for the first time in his life, experienced the freedom his heart so desperately longed for. His chains fell off. And for the first time, Paul was really free. And it's out of this experience, he writes to a group of first century Christians in the Turkey region called Galatia. We know about this because of the marvelous letter we're going to look at this morning that Paul wrote. A group of Christians who had heard the gospel, the freedom they longed for in the gospel, but something had gone awry. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. And Paul will help us unpack the path to true freedom. What does it mean to be truly free? As you enter into Galatians chapter 5, and if it's on your electronic gizmos or your paper copy, wherever you want to go, let's set the literary stage. Paul had shared the gospel. These people had embraced the gospel of grace, but they had begun to doctrinally drift. They had begun to jettison their freedom in Christ and begin to act like slaves again. So Paul, with sort of a concerned father's heart that is breaking, 
His tone immerses in the text around a sense of firmness, but also compassion. He wants them to not fall into enslavement again. He wants them to be truly free as the gospel calls them to free. And he gives them two bedrock truths about freedom that are vital for you and me as well. In this text in Galatians 5, Paul will say the first bedrock truth that you and I must grasp if we're really going to be free is that the gospel sets us free. The gospel sets us free. But not only that, this text is inextricably linked together. The second bedrock truth flows off, off the first, right off the first. And that is that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live this life of freedom. The gospel sets us free and the Holy Spirit empowers us to live this life. So let's press into it. You'll notice in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, if you have your Bible open, that Paul sets the theme of what has often been called the Magna Carta of human freedom in Galatians. And he starts with verse 1, and this is what he says. He sets the tone. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul contrasts in vivid genre the enslavement of legalistic, rule-centered religion. And he calls it an oppressive yoke of slavery. So he strikes the chord again in verses 13 through 15. And you'll notice he says this in these two ver- three verses, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. I like this because he says one word like a preacher, he adds more. Isn't that great? <laughs> See, we're not only, I love that. You shall love your neighbors yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, what Paul wants us to grasp here in this text is he wants us to grasp, he wants you to grasp, he wants me to grasp that we can never experience true freedom on our own. We can never truly be free on our own. Freedom is not something we attain by effort. It is something we are called to and given to as a gift of grace. It is the power of the gospel that sets us free. But then Paul says, what are the implications of this call to freedom? And he gives us three. And these are the three, and they're tightly woven together in the text, verses 13 through 15. That is, that the gospel sets us free from, first, enslavement to sin, secondly, from indulgence with sin, and then it sets us free to live as we ought, to love as we ought. That's the flow of the text. So first, notice that the gospel sets us free from enslavement to sin. Here in verse 13, Paul says, and he makes the strongest assertion, that the gospel gives us a new master as well as a new mastery over sin. In other words, if you've embraced the gospel and are a new creation in Christ, you are no longer obligated to sin. You do not have to sin anymore. You have a true choice. That's what he says. You have been, I have been given a freedom to turn from sin. But not only that, where he spends most of his time in the text is the second implication of freedom the gospel gives us, and that is that we are set free, or the gospel sets us free from indulgence with sin. Now, you'll notice in verse 13 this theme, and Paul will highlight the very perils and possibilities that true freedom inevitably bring, right? Freedom means that there are perils with freedom. That's the essence of freedom. And you'll notice a kind of an interesting phrase that is sort of hard for us to grasp. 
because of cultural location and language. Notice the phrase in the text, if you have it open, an opportunity for the flesh. Do you see that? Now, first of all, the word flesh is kind of strange for most of us. In English, we think of, you know, bodies, physicality, meat. And that word is uh, used in the Bible to describe our physicality. But this text is describing another meaning of the word. And it is not our external world. It is our internal world of our disordered desires, our sinful desires. It's about our inner world. And you'll notice in the text the intense conflict of our inner world that Paul is going to unpack for us. So flesh is our old nature before we came to Christ, our desires that that fuel that sinful nature. Now notice also the word opportunity. This again is a challenging word because we don't use this word as the original language uses it very often. If we unpack the meaning of this idea of opportunity, opportunity seems of a positive thing. I have an opportunity for a job. But this language, in the original language, is very different. This word that Paul plucks out of classical Greek and then brings it into Koine Greek or common Greek is very important for us to grasp. It is used by the Greek writers to describe a battle. It is giving the enemy a beachhead. For example, if the United States went to war with another nation, and you're a United States citizen, let's just say it's Iraq, and you as a United States citizen allow enemies of the United States to set up a beachhead in your own life or you're in, ho- in your own home. It's a, a base of operations. And so what Paul is saying is that we can give our old nature that wars against us a base of operations in our own country, in our own life. We can give our enemy free reign to flourish. That's the picture. It's a welcome mat that is put out for our old nature. Now, how does this work? How do we as, and if you've embraced Christ, how do we as Christians indulge sinful desires? What does that look like? Well, in many ways, it may be a mouse on your computer or a flick of your finger. Pornographic image pops on your computer screen, and rather than exit out or you follow it, a click or a flick, and pursue this pornographic image, you establish a base of operations to feel your sinful nature or my sinful nature. Students, you know what it's like to party, right? I mean, part of it is just, we were designed to party in a good way. But you know what it's like to be invited to a party. Maybe it's a wrong house or you're not sure about this group. And it gets late at night. And rather than go home or call your friend or text your friend or do something like that, you stick around, you linger in that place, in that late night party. And the opportunity for bad decisions and bad choices skyrocket. It is providing a beachhead, a welcome mat for your sinful desires to flourish. It may be reading fantasy novels. I hear more and more about this. It's 
increasing concern to me. Novels like that fuel discontentment. And fill our minds with longings and expectations no spouse could ever meet. Or maybe using our tongues to slander or misrepresent another person or other people's children. Sometimes, for me, it's Snicker bars. If you're here last week, Alan talked about chocolate chip cookies. I have a trouble with those, too, but Snicker bars are my death. Especially fun size. Whoever designed fun size, they're brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it's just a small little thing, right? Not a big bar. It's like, and I just, you know, you know the rest of the story is history. And if I allow myself to linger at the checkout counter, I'm in trouble. See, we give opportunity for the flesh in many ways. It can be hanging out in an online mall or an actual mall and shopping endlessly for stuff we may not need and we may not even afford. Sometimes we put the welcome mat out for our old sinful nature by a business context of more power, wanting more power and more position and more money and more success. And Paul says, use your freedom responsibly. He says, the sparks of indulgence would be less a challenge in our lives if we didn't keep stoking the fire. And he says, quit stoking the fire. Don't use your freedom to stoke the fire and nurture your old nature. But the gospel also gives the freedom to live in an entirely new way. Not just enslavement from sin, indulgent with sin, but to love as we love, as we ought to love. Notice in verse 13, Paul says, don't misuse your freedom. Uh Uh-uh. But use it to love others by selfishly serving them. Not only in the church, notice the brother language, but also loving our neighbor as ourself. So Paul will strike this theme of love and he will say, the whole testament is summarized in one word. It's love. Unconditional, sacrificial, godlike love. So Paul wants us and the Galatians to understand this truth. What is it? He wants us to understand that true freedom, true freedom is not the ability to do anything I want, but to love others as we ought. To love others as we ought. Late Christian statesman John Stott points it out beautifully in a book. He writes these words. He says, true freedom is not freedom from all responsibility to God and man in order to live for myself but the exact opposite. True freedom is from myself and from, I love this language, the cramping tyranny of my own self-centeredness, busted. In order to live in love for God and others, only in such self-giving love is an authentically free and human existence to be found. The gospel sets us free to live and be who we are created to be. But it is now the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live that way. And notice where the text goes. That's the second bedrock truth. In verses 16 and 17, Paul will say this, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, notice the language, are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
Paul looks into the depths of our hearts and minds, and he says, there's a massive tug-of-war going on. Do you see it? It's a tug-of-war between our old nature before we came to Christ and our new nature that Christ has given us. There is a tug-of-war tension. You feel it in our inner world. And the Holy Spirit who indwells us desires to transform us, and our old nature pulls us back. And Paul paints a bleak picture, doesn't he? Look at verses 18 through 23. It's ugly. It's like looking in a mirror before makeup's on in the morning. I mean, there's no way we can hide. It's not a pretty sight. Those words are hard to read, let alone look at. John, the gospel writer in his epistles, describes this in a different way. Same thing. He says, it is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Holy Spirit empowers us to say no to this old life. What is this old life? It's a self-absorbed outer life, enslaved by disordered desires of the inner world. It is fueled by pride. It is hurtful to self and to others. And sin not only affects you, it always affects other people. There's no such thing as an individual solitary sin. Whatever form is not merely personal, your sin, my sin, inevitably hurts others. Against this dark backdrop, the bright rays of hope now burst forth. You see it. If we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, if we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us, then the inner tug of war we all wrestle with, including me, will increasingly move in the direction of godlike desire. It will flow within us and out from us as new creations in Christ. Let me emphasize what Paul is saying. From the moment we embrace the gospel to the moment of our last dying breath, the Christian life is a totally, completely supernatural life. It is birthed supernaturally. It is sustained supernaturally. It is empowered supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Moment by moment. The Holy Spirit empowers us to say no to our old life. And He empowers us to say yes to a new life. Notice verses 22 through 25. I'm not going to read all this, but I want you to see the first aspect of it. Paul says, notice the contrast, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and he lists love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, notice Paul interjects a primary metaphor of the new life, the new nature. It is the word fruit, and it is not plural. It is singular. This is not just a minute point. Paul has been striking the theme of the freedom to love as we were created to love in Galatians 5. Love is a primary theme. So when Paul begins to talk about the spirit-filled life, the fruit, the fruit is not apples, oranges, and bananas. It is one fruit, and the fruit is love. Flowing from that, then, are the descriptors that closely align with 1 Corinthians 13 love, the descriptors of what this love looks like that the Holy Spirit produces in us. That is a God-like love. 
a love that looks and expresses itself as peaceful, as patient, as kind, as good, as faithful, as gentle, and it is filled with self-control. This is the transformational love of the Spirit of the new life. This is the God-like love. This is the distinctive mark of the Holy Spirit's work in a life, in your life, in a marriage, in a friendship, in a community, in a church, in the world. And notice in verse 25, Paul says this is a day-to-day, every-moment life. If we live by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit. So how do we do this? The gospel sets us free. The Holy Spirit empowers us to say no to an old way of life and yes to a new way of life. So how do we do it? I want to suggest three applications for us this morning of living the supernatural life in the power of the Spirit. The first is training with Jesus. The second is trusting in the Spirit. And three is keeping a battle mindset. Let me unpack those. First is training with Jesus. The cross of Christ makes possible the yoke of Christ. Jesus gives us this invitation in Matthew 11 to come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. That's people who are suffocating in misguided religion. And I will give you rest. He says what? Take my yoke and learn from me. Jesus offers, notice the contrast of the imagery of Galatians 5. He offers not a yoke of enslavement that suffocates our soul. He offers us freedom that launches our soul in life. His yoke is freeing. And he offers us this new life. And when we are yoked with Jesus, when we say goodbye to an old way of life, and we enter his yoke as his apprentices, we are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit who increasingly, increasingly forms us into greater Christ-likeness at every level of desire and action. We embrace Jesus' precepts and his practices. And keeping in step in the Spirit is not, it's not about trying harder, but training better with Jesus. If you are trying to live a supernatural life on your own, it is a failure. It is training with Jesus in the power of the Spirit that allows you to experience the life you long to live and the freedom to live it and to say yes to your new life and to say no to your old life. Keeping in step with the Spirit is never Never a hundred-yard sprint. It is a life marathon for all of us. This past week, I was in Minneapolis speaking, and I had an opportunity to meet with a group of guys for breakfast. Uh, They were older guys. (laughs) Yes, there are guys older than me. I see some of you looking. But I love being around younger folks that teach me and older folks that teach me, and there are some that are older than me. And I met a fine young man who just got back from the New York Marathon. He's 61 years of age. His name is Dick Glatzmeyer. He lives in Minnesota. He has run, get this, 40 marathons. I mean, if I run two miles, I'm thinking I'm really hip. And some of you are marathoners. Can you imagine 40 at age 61? And he described to these guys, I was just mesmerized by this guy. He described what it was like running the New York Marathon. And he said, the last three miles were unbelievably painful. When I hit this mark, my legs, everything, it was just pain all over my body, and I wanted to stop more than any other marathon I've ever run. And he said, at that moment, I remembered I was an apprentice of Jesus. That I was a follower of Jesus, and he said, the next three miles, I experienced just a portion of the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering that Jesus did. 
Those three miles, I walked with him and began to grasp the pain of that cross and what it meant physically for him to feel that pain. He said, I entered a fellowship of suffering as his apprentice I never experienced before in those last three miles. And I'm learning to train with Jesus. Do you notice in the text a word that the American church hardly ever talks about and it's crucifying the flesh? Do you see that word? It's very strong. Ooh. Theologians of the past have called it mortification. If you want to impress your friends, talk about mortification. It means put to death your old desires. A part of spiritual formation and Christ-likeness and the power of the Spirit is to put to death those old desires. And when we keep in step with the Spirit, we keep in step with Jesus. We increasingly love what Jesus loves. And we love how he loves. The Spirit empowers us, sustains us to love as we were created to love. At home, at school, at work, in every dimension of life. Second truth is we need to trust in the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit means moment by moment we trust the Holy Spirit to guide us, to empower us, to live the life we were created and redeemed to live. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, there's an interesting grammar that Paul uses he says, be, being, being, being filled with the Spirit. It's like you have a part to be acceptable, but God has to fill you, and it's every moment, every day. Be, being, filled with the Spirit always. Allow the Spirit to fill your sails. That's the picture. Theologian J.I. Packer says this. He says, the Christian life in all its aspects, intellectual and ethical and devotional and relational, upsurging in worship, an outgoing in witness is supernatural. Only the Spirit can sustain it and initiate it. Do we get what he's saying? All aspects. Trusting in the Holy Spirit to empower us and guide us means Believers can be and do what God calls us to be and do in any circumstance you find yourself in. Only with the Holy Spirit's guidance and empowerment can you be the spouse God's called you to be. Only. Only. Only in the power of the Holy Spirit as you depend on Him moment by moment can you be the student God has called you to be at school with your friends to make the choices God wants you to make. To have wisdom about your life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that through you. Only the Holy Spirit's empowerment gives you the strength to be the boss or give you the wisdom in a business decision or be the employee God has called you to be. Only the Holy Spirit's sustenance and empowerment can allow you to be the stay-at-home mom or dad God has called you to be. One of the most perilous Sunday-to-Monday gaps in our faith is that some of us tend to think that being filled with the Spirit is singing nice songs on Sunday, as wonderful as that is, or having some dynamic spiritual gift. The primary focus is to do the work God has called us Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The very first time the filling of the Holy Spirit individual occurs in the Bible is in Exodus 31. It is about people doing work and being empowered to do the work God's called them to do. Making things. You and I can't be vocationally faithful. We can't navigate the complexity and the messes we face in our business world, in our family world, in our marriage world, in our school world, unless we're empowered by the Holy Spirit moment by moment. 
We can't do it on our own, friends. It is the most massive setup. But with the power of the Spirit, we can be the kind of people God has called us to be in any circumstance, whether that's suffering, heartache, or whatever it is. This is the hope of this text. But we also need to know from the Scriptures that we can resist the Spirit. There are two metaphors in Scripture that talk about our freedom to resist the Spirit of God's work in our life. One is quench. The idea there is like a campfire. You know, when a campfire is really going, you throw a blanket over it, right? What happens? It doesn't burn out all totally. It just completely diminishes it. When we quench the Spirit by willful disobedience of attitude and action, we are throwing a blanket over the Holy Spirit's power to transform our life and the people we care about and our, li- and our situation. Some of us are throwing a blanket over the Spirit's work in our life because we're willfully disobedient in attitude or action, in commission and omission. But also, in Ephesians, we find the word grieve. And grieve has this idea that the Holy Spirit is a person. Grieve has a personal aspect. I remember as a kid having a very bad potty mouth. And I remember my mom looking at me as she'd hear me talk. She'd give me that look. You know the look? It's not a look of condemnation. I'm still her son. In Christ, we are secure. But it's that look she'd say to me, without a word, she'd say, I want so much more for you. The Holy Spirit wants you to experience the life God has for you. To experience so much more. Some of us are grieving him. And he wants us to grow up in Christ. Perhaps this morning the Holy Spirit is impressing on you an area of your life. No preacher, funny, smart, whatever you want to call him, can communicate in the depths of your heart. No human persuasion can do what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life this morning. To make you aware of some things you need to deal with. To clear the cobwebs of your heart and your mind. No pastor can do that with any persuasion. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would have free reign to work in each one of our hearts, including mine this morning. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Are there areas you need to address? Secret sins that need attention? Willful disobedience? Attitudes? Unforgiveness of others? Bitterness? Maybe there's a deeply ingrained sin pattern in your life. Don't struggle alone. Talk with one of our pastors and we will connect you to a trained, credentialed, and competent Christian counselor to help you. Weeds of the heart that are deep, wounds of the heart that are deep, take time and help by others to heal. Lastly, keep a battle mindset. Keep a battle mindset. Let me just say simply, the most fierce battles we fight are not with others. They are within our own heart. Your heart and my heart, the Bible says, is at the front lines of the most intense cosmic war imaginable. And you and I face an enemy we often forget. Ephesians tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There is an enemy who hates your soul and hates the bride of Christ. And he is actively working to inflame your own sinful desires and to distract you. The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, 
allows us <clears throat> brilliantly to look over the shoulder of a demon by the name of Uncle Screwtape. He instructs his young nephew, Wormwood, in demonic deception. And early in the book, he says this, It is funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. We must never forget. Jesus died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And God's word says, greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. We face a fierce enemy, but he is defeated. Louis Saperini experienced the rapturous joy, physical freedom in 1947. But the rest of the story about Louis Saperini needs to be told because it was in 1949 when he embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, hearing Billy Graham speak, he experienced true freedom. And after hearing the gospel and embracing it, he wanted to go back to Japan to see his captor. He'd heard that one of them was alive, and he penned him this letter. To Machuro Watanabe, it was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, he writes. But thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love has replaced the hate I've had for you. He said, Christ said to forgive your enemies and pray for them. I have forgiven you and I would hope that you would become a Christian. History tells us Matsuro Watanabe received Louis' letter but never responded. But Louis was truly free. For Louis knew the greatest enslavement is not restriction of physical freedom, but imprisonment behind bars of bitterness and an unforgiving heart. Freedom, friends, is not the ability to do whatever we want. It is to love everyone as we ought, even those who oppose and hate us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, speak into each heart this morning, wherever we are. Open our eyes and hearts to the truth of your word and bring transformation, we pray.